Well, good morning, everybody. It's so good to see you all here this morning. It's a beautiful day today. Today is like one of those nice, crisp, beautiful mornings, and it's just so good to see you all here in God's house to worship together. Uh, Yesterday, our family attended a funeral of a friend of ours. Uh, She was 47 years old. Uh, She leaves behind her husband and two children. It was just really, really a heartbreaking day, and she died of pancreatic cancer. And the journey from diagnosis to death was 10 months, so short. And during the funeral, uh, her younger brother, who's also a friend of mine, uh, shared a eulogy. And I I wanted to share just a little bit of what he shared because it applies to us here at our church. And he said that in the final days, he would go visit his sister every single day. And he would make it a point that every day when he visited her, he would say, I love you. He kept saying that, I love you, I love you, I love you. And he shared yesterday at the funeral that uh, he said that because you can't take any unused I loves you, I love yous, you know, with you. You don't get any credit for any unused I love yous. So he said to us, he encouraged us all, say I love you as much as you can while you have the opportunity. And the more you say I love you, the more you actually hear I love you as well. And that just really penetrated my heart uh, yesterday. And uh, I love coming to church every Sunday morning, and and I love seeing you all here at church. And and church, I I love you. I, I love you. I love our church. Thank you, Alyssa. Thank you, Crystal. I I genuinely love our church. I love that God loves our church, and he has uh, brought together such loving people. And if you're visiting for the first time, I love that you're here. (laughs) Come back and experience the love of God in this place. Um, I don't ever want to take you for granted, church. I just love you as a church. I love pastoring our church. I love walking through life together. Uh, we just, we're not guaranteed tomorrow. And so uh, say I love you as much as you can on the patio to one another. And if you do that, you're going to hear all kinds of I love yous all throughout the day. So I just wanted to share that with you. Uh, the title of this morning's message is Canceled Debt. Because of God's great love for us, he canceled our debts. And so that's the title of this morning's message, Canceled Debt. We are in week four of this six-week series that will conclude on Easter Sunday. And this entire series is devoted to one single attribute of God, one and only one, and that is God's mercy. And in order for us to understand what it means when we say that God is a merciful God, And in order for us to understand what it means when we say that God calls us to be a merciful people, we need to know what the Bible says about mercy. Mercy is a common word we hear throughout society, but we want to know what God's word has to say about mercy, which is why in week one, we gave you the working definition of this attribute. And so I want to review that definition for you. Mercy is this. 
It is compassionate treatment of those in need. And then I gave you two specific areas of need. I said, those in need of, one, of being forgiven, and then two, of being rescued. Of being forgiven and of being rescued. Because at times, we sin against God. At times, we sin against one another, and we need compassionate treatment because we are in need of being forgiven. At other times, we are in need of being uh, shown mercy, not because of a sin, but maybe because of a trial that we're going through in our lives. Some difficulty, not due to our own sin, but just because of life. And so we need God's mercy in times of trial, of times of difficulty. Thank God that his mercies are new every morning, amen? His mercies are new every morning because he gives us new forgiveness for new sins. We're going to sin, so thank God that there is new forgiveness for that day. And then also, we're going to face trials, so thank God that there is his mercy for new strength for those new trials of that day. And so today, we're going to spend our time, the majority of our time, in Matthew 18. And I'm going to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew 18, verse 21. As you make your way there, you might know that Matthew is the first book in the New Testament. It's the first of four Gospels. And I'm going to begin by reading verse 21. You can follow along in your Bibles. You can also follow along up here. Matthew 18, I'll start with verse 21. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Here's the scene. Peter approaches Jesus and he asks Jesus, how many times is he required to forgive somebody who sins against him? And he doesn't even give Jesus a chance to answer. Before Jesus can even answer, Peter decides to offer his own answer. Oh, oh up to seven times? Now, how did Peter arrive at the number seven? One possibility is back then in that culture, it was standard practice to forgive somebody up to three times. So there was a cap on forgiveness. If somebody sinned against you, forgive them. Again, again, third time maybe, yes. But beyond that, you're out of forgiveness. So there was a cap. And so... Peter says to Jesus, up to seven times? So Peter is feeling good about himself because he's like, I'm going to go above and beyond the standard three. I'm not even going to stop at four. I won't even double that number. I'll go one more than double the standard practice. And so Peter can't wait for Jesus to pat him on the back and to commend him and to congratulate him. Peter's waiting for Jesus to say, Peter, you are such a kind and forgiving person. You're offering to forgive someone seven times. Peter, that's too many. That's way too many. Don't be that ambitious. Three is enough. That's standard. Okay, maybe four. But don't go beyond four, Peter. 
Don't be that generous. So Peter is waiting for Jesus to respond with something like that, and this is where Peter gets caught. And what follows is a parable known as the parable of the unmerciful servant. You know, Jesus often spoke in parables. And he spoke in parables to get across a message using word pictures. So whenever you think of parables, think word pictures. Jesus is getting across a message using a story. And when Jesus spoke in parables, he was basically giving a vision of life in God's kingdom, in God's community. And he used stories. And here's what he did. He would throw alongside a story. The word parable, para means alongside, right? Like parallel lines. And so he would throw a story to paint a word picture of God's kingdom. And so oftentimes, here's what would happen. People would listen to Jesus speak in parables, and they're waiting, and they're waiting, and they're anticipating, and boom, out of nowhere, Jesus catches them. He gives them an answer they were not expecting. So they get caught. They're expecting one thing, Jesus gives them another. And this is where Peter gets caught. Look at verse 22. Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Now, some of your translations might say 70 times seven. That's 490, if my math is correct. That's a lot more than 77. That's a huge disparity. 490, 77. So what's going on here? Why the difference? Well, the difference in the number between translations has to do with the document that the editors of your particular Bible referred to to come up with that number, either 77 or 70 times seven. Take a look up here. These are a couple of the documents that editors would refer to. The first is the Hebrew Bible. The Hebrew Bible, we know it as today's Old Testament. So some editors referred to the Hebrew Bible. Some editors referred to a document known as a Septuagint. The Septuagint is basically the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And these are widely used. And so certain scholars referred to the Hebrew Bible. Other scholars referred to the Septuagint. Not all scholars agree which translation uh, was the one. But if you look at your Bible, whether it says 77 or 70 times 7, you'll notice that there is a, a footnote. And so in the footnote, it'll say just the other one. Because, again, scholars are not in full agreement. But ultimately, the number is not the main point of this passage. The point is this. Whatever number Peter thinks is appropriate or even generous, Jesus says it is infinitely more. In essence, what Jesus is saying is this. Peter, don't keep track. Don't keep track of forgiveness. And to illustrate his point, Jesus shares this parable. 
a parable about a king and his servants. Let's pick it up in verse 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. So, the servant owed the king an amount so large he could never repay it. 10,000 bags of gold. In today's economy, that's the equivalent of, ready? Hundreds of millions of dollars. Hundreds of millions of dollars. There's no way on earth the servant is going to be able to repay his king ever. Not even a fraction of that amount. So he begs for mercy. The king has mercy on him and he releases him from that debt. So what does the servant do? Let's find out in verse 28. But when the servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. But he refused. And instead he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. The king releases the servant. The servant is released from a debt he could never, ever repay. It's the perfect opportunity to pay it forward. It's the perfect opportunity to find a friend who owes him a little money and says, this is the best day of my life. I'm canceling your debt. It's the perfect opportunity. But what he does is he finds his fellow servant, demands his money, chokes him, throws him in jail. You know, the irony is this. He has his fellow servant thrown into jail so that his fellow servant can never repay what he owes. A hundred silver coins. In today's economy, that's about $4,000. Now, $4,000 is not little money. That's a good amount of money. But compare that to hundreds of millions of dollars. So why did Jesus share this parable with Peter? What point was he getting across? 
not only to Peter, but also, also to the uh, crowds who were within earshot, and then also to us today in the 21st century. Here's the message, and you could follow along up here. The unforgiving servant's refusal to release his fellow servant from debt shows that he did not truly appreciate his own forgiveness. I'll say that again. The unforgiving servant's refusal to release his fellow servant from debt shows that he did not truly appreciate his own forgiveness. The unforgiving servant begged the king. And he said to the king, I'll pay back everything. There was no way. In fact, the king knew that. That's why the king didn't say, okay, I'll tell you what. I'll give you a 30-year interest-free loan. Or I'll give you a 100-year interest-free loan. There was no way the servant was going to be able to repay the king. Church, you and I could never repay back God what we owe him. We could never repay God what we owe him. And if we as Christ followers are the most forgiven people in the world, and we are, shouldn't we then be the most forgiving people in the world? I'm going to say this about forgiveness. Forgiveness is one of the most difficult, if not the most difficult, messages for a pastor to preach on. And it is one of the most, if not the most difficult passages or topics for you to listen to. Here's the reason why. We're going to hear a whole message on mercy and forgiveness. We're going to walk out those doors and then we're going to fail. We're going to fail to forgive someone. We're going to lose our patience. We're going to harbor bitterness. We're going to open God's word, hear a message on forgiveness, read passages about forgiveness, and then we're going to still hold resentment in our hearts. That's why this is the most difficult topic to preach on and to listen to. And forgiving someone is so difficult because it can be a painful process. But there is hope. There is always hope in Christ, amen? There is always hope in Christ when it comes to forgiveness. And so I want to share with you three helpful things that we can know about this process of forgiveness, of extending mercy, compassionate treatment to those in need of being forgiven. Number one, please know this, we cannot forgive on our own. We cannot forgive on our own. True biblical forgiveness cannot happen apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. Because when we feel wronged, the last thing we want to do is to forgive that person. 
when we've been slandered, when we've been spoken poorly against, when our emotions are high, and when we just want justice, the last thing we want to do is to forgive that person. The only the Holy Spirit can bring us to the point of forgiving that person. You know, when someone has broken our trust and we don't feel like forgiving them, when we've been betrayed, we don't want to forgive that person. But thank God that we don't have to do it alone because we just cannot do it on our own. Thank God that we don't have to deal with conflicts the way that those who don't know Jesus deal with conflicts. Thank God that we don't have to lash out at people. Thank God that we don't have to lose our temper. Thank God that we don't have to harbor bitterness. Now, the reality is we still do those things, right? And that's only because, that's only because we don't yield to the Spirit, and instead we yield to our feelings and our emotions. And the reality is, oftentimes, I just do not feel like forgiving somebody. Now, that's not to say that feelings are not important. We have emotions and feelings, but please be careful not to be led by our feelings and our emotions. You see, because our feelings and our emotions, they often dictate our actions. That's why the Word of God in Galatians 5, verses 16 and 17 says this, so I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the, desire, the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. You are not to do whatever you feel like. You see, showing mercy to others, it begins with this understanding that we cannot forgive on our own. We must be walking by the Spirit, not by our feelings. And in a culture and society where it's common to hear this phrase, well, how do you feel about this? How do you feel about this? Now, it's okay to have those feelings about certain things, right? Because the reality is you can never turn on and off your feelings, right? I don't wake up and say, I'm going to be happy today. I'm going to be happy whether I like it or not. I can't pretend my emotions or feelings. I, I, I either feel something or I don't. But we are never instructed by God's word to act on our feelings. We are to walk by the Spirit. And oftentimes, the Spirit and our feelings are in contrary, are contrary to each other. Showing mercy begins with an understanding that we cannot forgive on our own. We need to walk by the Spirit. And that leads us directly to the second truth, and that's this. Forgiveness is an act of the will. It is always an act of the will. Because if we only did things when we felt like it, we wouldn't get a whole lot done in life. You see, if, 
if I woke up whenever I wanted to wake up, well, maybe some Sundays I wouldn't be here at church. <laughs> You'd have a blank stage up here. If I ate whatever I wanted to eat, if I went to work only when I wanted to go to work, if I exercised only when I wanted to exercise, then we wouldn't fulfill God's desire and will for our lives. So with that in mind, imagine this. Imagine for a moment that we approached God and we asked for forgiveness. And God said to us, I don't feel like forgiving you today. Come back tomorrow. Maybe I'll be in a better mood tomorrow. And we'll see. When we go before God with genuine remorse, do we ever doubt that he's going to forgive us? No. He is always ready to forgive us. So how can we not do for others what God has already done for us? If you're taking notes, write this down. The will to forgive must transcend our emotional desire not to forgive. The will to forgive must transcend our emotional desire not to forgive. Forgiveness is an act of the will, not of the feeling to forgive. And when we forgive somebody, it's important to know that the offense is not okay. Please understand that. When somebody sins against you and you forgive that person, you are not excusing that sin. An accident is okay. A sin is not. If somebody accidentally bumps you walking down the hallway and says, oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You say, it's okay. Don't worry about it. It's okay because it was an accident. There was no ill will. An accident is okay. A sin is never okay. When someone sins against us and comes to us with remorse, the proper biblical response is not, it's okay, don't worry about it. The proper biblical response is, I forgive you. I forgive you. And the problem is this. We learn from a very young age to say, it's okay. And it usually takes place on the playground, and it goes something like this. Parents are there with their respective kids. Johnny is playing with Joey. They're having a great time in the sand. But all of a sudden, Johnny pushes Joey to the ground. Joey cries and runs to his parent. Johnny runs to his parent. Joey says to his parent while crying, he pushed me down. Johnny says to his parent, he made me. He deserved it. After a while, parents compose their kids. They bring them back together. Parent over here of Johnny says, okay, Johnny, I want you to apologize to Joey. Say you're sorry. I'm sorry. Joey, 
Say to Johnny, it's okay. It's okay. So we learn from a very young age to say it's okay. But it is not okay. An accident is okay. Sin is never okay. So when somebody sins against us, you don't say, it's okay, no problem, don't worry about it. When someone sins against you, it's not okay, it is a problem, and that person should worry about it. Better yet, that person should grieve over the sin. So when we forgive somebody, we're not excusing the sin. Here's what we're doing. We are releasing the person from the debt of that sin. Now, sin has consequences. King David suffered the consequences of sin. King David went to God and he cried out to God, have mercy on me, please forgive me. God forgave David. And still, David faced the consequences of his sins, of adultery, betrayal, murder. David was released from the debt of that sin, he still faced the consequences of those sins. So when we forgive someone, we don't excuse the sin, we release the person from that sin. Now here's a common question that's often asked in the discussion of forgiveness. Can we forgive a person who doesn't ask for forgiveness? Can we forgive a person who doesn't or hasn't asked for forgiveness? And the answer is yes. We can and we must. We don't wait for them to do their part. We take the initiative and we forgive. After all, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Don't wait. Actively choose to forgive. Now, this is not what you are to do, okay? Don't do this. Don't go up to that person and say, hey, I know you're not gonna ask for forgiveness because you don't think you did anything wrong, but I'm gonna forgive you anyway because I'm a good person. Don't do that. Don't do that. Quietly in your heart, you forgive that person and release that person from the debt of sin. Now, reconciliation and forgiveness are distinct, they're different. So I want you to know the difference. Recon reconciliation can only happen when that person recognizes his or her sin. God calls us to do our part and release the person from the debt of the sin by forgiving that person. Okay? And reconciliation 
can only happen when that other person comes to the realization that that person has sinned. That is why, church, forgiveness can be one-sided. Reconciliation, on the other hand, requires repentance. Our job is to forgive. Now, it's possible that person may never, ever admit to it. But do you know what we do when we release the person from the debt of sin? Here's what we're doing. We're saying, God, I am now no longer judge. I release that person to you. What's the alternative? Do you want to know what the alternative is? The alternative is that we live in bitterness and resentment. And we allow it to eat away at us. You ever notice when we don't forgive somebody, it just eats away at us. And God has called us not to live like that. The longer we hold somebody in debt, the longer we will be in pain. And by the way, when we release someone from the debt of sin, it doesn't automatically erase the pain. It won't erase the pain instantly. By God's grace, however, over time, that pain can subside. Now, I don't know your situation. Some of you, you've experienced unimaginable pain because of somebody else. Every situation might be different. But by God's mercy, you can, you can experience healing. For some, it's going to take a long time. But that's the forgiveness process. Again, how can we not do for others what God has already done for us? Finally, here's the third truth. Cultivate an attitude of forgiveness. Cultivate an attitude. You see, because it's not easy to forgive at the snap of a finger, especially if the offense is so severe. We, we can't turn on and off our emotions like a faucet. We just can't. That's why we need to cultivate an attitude of forgiveness. Did you know that mercy can be learned and mercy can grow? After the first week's message in the series, I had a conversation with one of our members on the patio. This person gave me permission to share this. I was so encouraged by it that I asked the person, can I share? And this person said, yes. So on the patio, this person said, you know, Tim, uh, I used to not be very merciful. I used to not really be kind. But over the years, I changed. Over the years, as I became more intentional about it, I grew in mercy. And this person shared it not to boast, but to well, give glory to God, that this person was not naturally merciful. But by practicing mercy day in and day out, this person became merciful. Merciful. 
That's why we are to cultivate an attitude of forgiveness. If we want to get good at something, we have to practice. We have to train ourselves. Sports, music, business, anything. We need to practice it and practice it. So I've got the perfect training ground for us to develop forgiveness. It's called the freeway. So the next time you're on the freeway and somebody cuts you off or doesn't allow you to come into the lane, I want you to do this. I want you to say, I forgive you. I forgive you and you and you and you. I forgive all of you. Earlier in our series, I gave you four ways to show mercy, specifically here at church. And I also said at that time that don't be surprised if I show these again at some point later in the series. And so I'm going to show you those four ways in just a second, but I'm going to apply it to a broader context, not just to the church. Apply this to your marriage, to your home, to your loved ones, your workplace, your school, your neighborhoods, and here at church. You can apply these four ways to any number of situations. Here are the four ways to show mercy. They were be patient with people's personalities. Remember I said, I didn't use the word quirks, even though you are all quirky. Be patient with people's personalities. Do good to those who hurt you. Be kind to those who offend you. Seek out those who are hurting. Now, in our time remaining, I'm going to add two more ways. So I'm going to bring this up to six today. Here's the fifth way that we can show mercy. Number five, don't keep score. Do you know what happens when you keep score in your marriage? Somebody always loses. And if you end in a tie, you lose together. Do you know what happens when we keep score with our friends? How come I'm always the one to initiate going out? How come I'm always the one calling my friend? How come I'm always the one? I'm always the one. Somebody will always be resentful if we keep score. Don't keep score. Imagine if God kept score. In fact, you don't have to even imagine because the Bible tells us here's what would happen if God kept score. Psalm 130, verses 3 through 4 says this. If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness so that we can, with reverence, serve you. How can we not do for others what God has already done for us? Don't keep score. And here's the sixth and final way to show mercy that builds on the fifth one, and that's this. I'm going to leave you with this. Leave the last cookie. Leave the last cookie. And you know that you can replace cookie with any other item. Something that is precious to you, that is of value to you, that is desirable to you, Leave the last cookie. 
The point is be thoughtful and intentional about making sure we're looking out for the other person's best interest. If you've ever dined at a family-style restaurant where all the food comes out on big platters and you grab your portion, don't you appreciate it when you see a platter and there's just one final piece left? And nobody takes it. There's that last big, juicy, succulent shrimp. Don't be the person who sees that last item and quickly grabs it. I don't mind if I do. I hope nobody else wanted this one. You snooze, you lose. Don't be that person. In fact, take that item and put it on someone else's plate. Leaving the last cookie is a great way to practice mercy. And I trust that this week, God's going to give each of us many opportunities to leave the last cookie. So church, go forth this week. Practice what we've learned and leave the last cookie. You want to hear something pretty funny? We don't normally have cookies on the patio, but somehow there were cookies in the middle between services. <laughs> Hopefully there's still some left. Leave the last cookie and see what God can do through you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for the reminder through your word that you call us to leave the last cookie. And we know, we trust I'm confident that you're going to give us so many opportunities this week to leave the last cookie, whatever it might be, and help us to demonstrate the kind of mercy that we received through Jesus Christ. We thank you for him. We thank you that he came and died for us. He took upon himself our sin, and that he released us from the debt of that sin. Thank you for Jesus. We love you. Pray all these things in his name. Amen.